Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Thank you for joining us today as we celebrate Disneyland's 60th birthday. Walt said that it took people to make his dream a reality. And without each of you, we would not be standing here today. In honor of our diamond celebration, I am proud to announce the Million Dollar Dazzle. This morning, we had the pleasure of awarding our first donation to the Girl Scouts of Orange County, who are right here in the audience. We have two very special guests helping us celebrate with song. This is like saying thank you to Walt, playing that song. Hello, Neverlanders! This is episode 85 of the Neverland Podcast. I'm glad for you to come along with me. Uh, make sure you take your pixie out of your pocket because we're flying away to Neverland. I do got to make sure I get one thing out of the way real fast. I goofed up. Did everybody notice? I had looked on a website when I was doing my preparing you know, for the summer knowing that the opening day of Disneyland was coming up soon. And for some reason, I... Maybe I looked at it wrong or something, but I was thinking the opening day had been July the 11th. So I had prepared to where all eight of our episodes where we were going and showing and while listening to the opening day of Disneyland, I was all going to land and all come to a head last weekend because I thought July the 11th. And then as soon as I got it up there posted, Jesse sent me a text message while I was out of town last week and said, by the way, you do know Disneyland opened on July the 17th, right? Well, <laughs> after I went and double-checked, I was like, oh, no, I goofed that completely up. And so I was about a week early. But uh, that's okay. Y'all hopefully enjoyed our celebrations of last week. And, of course, we do have some more things to talk about the 60th anniversary of Disneyland coming up. And But uh, you know what? Something else big happened last weekend that I want to talk about, and that was the San Diego 
Comic-Con. And I have lots of fun news and information to share with you about that. So we're going to have a lot of fun. I do invite you, of course, to go to NeverlandPodcast.com where you can find out about our Twitter feed, our Facebook like page and group, and also our voicemail, 816-226-6492. And don't forget to join the Neverlanders if you haven't done it already. Simply clicking right there where it says Neverlanders will take you to all the information you need. And do not forget to donate to our Patreon link that you will see on the left. And do not forget also that half of what you give to Patreon, I also give to Give Kids the World, a wonderful charity. But there was all kinds of news and all kinds of fun things to talk about. And I want to get right to it by sharing some fantastic audio from a little meeting they had uh, with Bob Iger. But first, what am I talking about? Well, I'm obviously talking about Disney Parks News. This is Gary Gnu, and the No Gnu's is Good Gnu Show, the only TV Gnu's program guaranteed to contain no Gnu's whatsoever. Neverland News from the Disney Parks. Thank you very much, Nihao, and good morning. On behalf of the Walt Disney Company, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to our showcase of the spectacular Shanghai Disney Resort. Our goal was to create something that was authentically Disney and distinctly Chinese. And we believe we've achieved the perfect blend guaranteed to delight all who visit. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to present Shanghai Disney Resort. Shanghai Disneyland will be a magical place of optimism and possibility. The resort will include two hotels, a beautiful lake, a retail dining and entertainment district, and of course the great theme park itself. The park is grand in scope with six different lands, each with an exciting storytelling theme. From the moment you enter, you will see our castle, which is not only the largest, tallest, and grandest castle that we've ever built, but it's an entertainment venue unto itself. And I hope we will have the honor of welcoming you to Shanghai Disney Resort next year. Shay Shay. All right, so yes, that was Bob Iger. Uh, my goodness. Lots of fun things in there. I mean, did you guys get to see any of the footage? They showed uh, like a computer graphic of, of Tomorrowland online. Uh, showed what this this Tron ride. It's like a roller coaster, but you're riding on a light cycle. I mean, so many fun things. I mean, a Tarzan, uh, and of course a big Frozen show, a big sing along coming. Uh, but this all opening, up, we're, we're looking about a year's timeline uh, for it to to actually be there. I mean, wow. I mean, we've got a new fantasy land coming in with an Enchanted Storybook Castle where they're going to have a show. Uh, they're going to have a 100-acre wood in there with Winnie the Pooh, or there's going to be a, a, a Wonderland maze, uh, a Crystal Grotto, a Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, uh, Peter Pan's Flight, another section called Treasure Cove where there's going to be a Pirates of the Caribbean Battle for Sunken Treasure, uh, which... This is an attraction. Apparently, it takes a boat ride, and it's so it's going to be like a Pirates of the Caribbean. I guess it's going to be a little different, maybe a little bit more story. Adventurous spirits will be tempted to board a pirate ship, paddle through a scenic cove on explorer canoes, and dine at Barbosa's Bounty. I mean, this it's an entire section dedicated to pirates now. Uh, then, of course, we have Adventure Isle. 
Now this is going to be a newly discovered lost world, hidden treasures, uh, lots of mysteries. There's going to be this roaring mountain, which uh, is going to be a fun ride. I saw some artwork on this. It's like this giant dinosaur alligator thing, you know, is coming at you when you're riding down this river. Uh, and of course, there's going to be soaring over the horizon, uh, which is a thrilling rafting adventure on roaring rapids. Also, uh, well, I guess soaring the horizon is like traveling around the world. Uh, there's camp discovery. Lots of different kind of things. And then, of course, there's going to be Tomorrowland. And like I mentioned, there was that Tron light cycle power run, which looks like a big roller coaster on a light cycle. I, I, well, I tell you what, if you were not planning on making a trip to Shanghai, this is all you need to convince you. Unless you hate Tron, which is odd. But uh, there's also going to be a new Space Ranger adventure. Uh, something new. Uh, or break the bonds of gravity on jetpacks, they're saying. So, I'm not exactly sure what they're, you know, is this a ride type of thing, or is this going to be a sit-down attraction? I, I really don't have any information about this jetpack thing, but I'm curious about uh, Buzz Lightyear, I figure it'll be similar to the, uh, the rides that are previously existing, maybe just a few updates to it. And also, there's going to be Mickey Avenue, uh, and this is going to be at the main entry into the Disney Park. That's, uh, of course, it's going to have Mickey Mouse and all his pals, and of course, some shops. Looks like some confections from some of the artwork we've seen. But of course, you'll get your hug and your photo with all your Disney characters, and it's going to have the Avenue M Arcade, which is one of many shops. Uh, which I'm hoping you know that means like maybe some classic arcade games, kind of like when uh, Tron Legacy was coming out. They had the Flynn's Arcade set up for a while. I uh, kind of hope it's bringing those back. That would be fantastic. Also, we have the Gardens of Imagination. This is going to be, of course, about the wonders of nature and enjoying the imagination, kind of meeting head-to-head, which was a very Walt Disney type of thing because he was, of course, very much into conservation. Uh, but this, of course, we're going to see Dumbo the Flying Elephant in this area, a nighttime spectacular of magic and light known as Ignite the Dream. Uh, I'm sure that's going to have involving some fireworks, but it's a castle stage show and that sort of a thing. Um, of course, I would think the castle is going to be more in Fantasyland, so maybe the fireworks will be shooting off over there. Uh, but there's also going to be a Mickey Storybook Express going on in there. So this might be like a secondary a, a, a show off to another thing. Uh, I haven't gotten to see a whole lot of information on this, but I what I do have, I, I'm presenting to you <laughs> as it is. And also, uh, as you heard a little bit there in our opening that they are starting this new thing now with the 60th anniversary, the the Million Dollar Dazzle program. And so every month, Disneyland Resort, uh, during this celebration, they're going to surprise a Southern California nonprofit with a $60,000 gift, uh, totaling more than a million dollars by the time they're done. Now, does that mean that they've actually been doing this all year long and uh, this is the first that I've heard about it first I, I don't know if any, I, I, don't, I haven't heard this from anybody so they've probably been doing it since January because that was actually when this diamond celebration year or perhaps in May they started because that's when the diamond celebration began either way uh, every month a different charity uh, unfortunately it's only in Southern California I'm sure there's a lot of other charities that could benefit from that as well but perhaps in the name of the uh, well, you couldn't call it a million-dollar Dazzle program, but you could call it your own personal Dazzle program. You might want to donate to a charity yourself in the name of Walt or something. <laughs> you know, just to kind of spread it around. Because I, I think it's cool what they're doing, but that sticking it down in Southern California, I think it's just a little bit sad. Because I, I, I think a lot of other charities would benefit from something like this. So I guess that's up to the rest of us to do that, right? So let's go for it. Now, as we move along, I do have a movie review for you. There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Hey, a movie! Yeah, we're gonna be 
a movie starring everybody and me. Boy, I wish I were you people seeing this for the first time. Kermit, I got a great picture of the chicken. Oh, good. Imagine a soldier the size of an insect. The ultimate secret weapon. If you give godlike powers to everyone, it's going to be chaos. So how do we stop him? By knowing I. Scott, I've been watching you for a while. You're different. And I believe everyone deserves a shot at redemption. Do you? Absolutely. My days of breaking into places and stealing stuff are over. What do you want me to do? I want you to break into a place and steal some stuff. Makes sense. Are you ready to become a hero? Now, this suit has power. You have to learn how to control it. And these are your greatest allies. You're kind of cute. When you're small, you have superhuman strength. You like a bullet. So you need to know how to punch. You want to show me how to punch? Show me how to punch. That's how you punch. You tried to hide your suit from me. Now, it's going to blow up in your face and destroy everyone you care about. Stop the future? You're just a thief! No. A man-man. I know. It wasn't my idea. Now, before I get into the movie, let's talk a little bit about the Marvel comics. Of course, as you will see in the movie, it does all begin with Hank Pym, who creates the Pym Particles and was the original Ant-Man. And uh, he was pacifist and everything, but he ended up part of the Avengers and had quite a long history with him before, of course, he uh, had his suit stolen by Scott Lang, which in the movie, of course, they do represent. But focusing on Hank Pym for a moment, um, of course, these are subatomic particles, which of course are the Pym particles and everything, and it's through the application of magnetic fields he was able to entrap particles within two separate serums. Uh, one serum would reduce the size of a person and any objects, and the other would restore him to their normal size. And of course, he tested the serum on himself and discovered it was more powerful than he expected and reduced him to the size of an insect. Uh, Pym became trapped in an anthill actually for a while and was pursued by the ants within he later escaped restored himself to his normal size with his other serum and decided that the serums were too dangerous to exist and he actually destroyed both of them it was weeks later though he did reconsider his decision and became and began recreating the serums and he quit he kept it all secret 
and especially, but he was, you know, with his experience in the anthill, he kind of kept secret, but he was inspired, and he, so he undertook a study of ants and theorized that ants could communicate through psionic and electrical waves transmitted through their antenna. And then after months of work, he succeeded in creating his first cybernetic helmet, which would enable him to communicate with the ants through transmitting and receiving psionic and electrical waves. Thinking that someday he might want to use the shrinking potion on himself again, Pym also designed a protective costume for himself, uh, unstable molecules, and steel mesh. But he also received an assignment from the government on that same day to concoct a gas that would provide people with temporary, limited immunity to radioactivity under certain specific circumstances. Based on his previous work, the government also assigned four other scientists to assist him in the project. Uh, the KGB, the Soviet intelligence agency, learned of Pym's project and sent agents who held Pym and his assistants prisoner in their own laboratory. And only Pym knew the entire formula for the gas they had now developed and refused to tell the Soviet agents. The agents set about searching for the laboratory for the formula, intending to kill Pym and his assistants afterward. So unseen, Pym dons the cybernetic helmet and protective costume and, using his reducing formula, shrank himself to the size of an ant. And as he escaped to an anthill outside, he put a large number of ants under his control with the helmet and used them to attack the agents as free as men, who then overpowered their assailants. Pym then he restores himself to normal size and in the guise of Ant-Man battled various menaces including Comrade X, the Protector, uh, criminal scientist Elias Egghead Star who has become Pym's greatest enemy as well as the Scarlet Beetle, the Hijacker, the Alien Kula, the Voice, and the Time Master. And of course, as I did mention, he was once at one time an Avenger and has come back to being an Avenger. Uh, eventually he developed a series of capsules that contained Pym particles, which he uh, used to grow or shrink various heights. And he also got to where he was able to grow greater than normal heights. And so thereafter, Pym preferred to use his power to grow giant size for crime fighting and called himself Giant Man. And at first he found that he could not support his own weight if he grew to a height above 12 feet. But later he was able to reach far greater heights, even 100 feet, and still move about comfortably. But he became weaker in proportion to the amount he grew beyond 12 feet. But to, yeah, so that's kind of the way I'm used to them. And as presented in Disney's uh, Avengers uh, Earth's Greatest Heroes, they did have him with the ability he could shrink down, you know, and be Ant-Man. Or then he would grow and the, the helmet would disappear and he would be Giant-Man. So they had him going both ways the entire time, uh, which made him a very interesting. And that's how I became the most familiar with that character. Uh, but of course, you know, for several years... Pym had been in love with Janet Van Dyne, and they do mention her in the film, uh, but because of his repressed personality and her abundant wealth, he resisted marrying her. And then one day while working in his laboratory, whilst thinking of the fact that he wanted to marry Van Dyne but couldn't, Pym accidentally dropped and smashed some files containing various unknown gases. The released gases wreaked a radical temporary personality change in Pym, what could be seen as a severe case of schizophrenia. He took the new identity of Yellow Jacket, claimed that he had murdered Henry Pym, kidnapped Van Dyne and proposed marriage to her and as Pym had long wanted to do uh, realizing that Yellow Jacket was really Pym Van Dyne decided to play along figuring that she would worsen his psychological condition if she did otherwise now when you see the film you will see Yellow Jacket as part of the story but it is a different person it's not Hank Jim Hank Pym becoming Yellow Jacket you'll see a different character becoming Yellow Jacket and uh, I do believe that that is actually current with the modern comics that they do have Yellow Jacket out running around and uh, 
I think the the costume is actually different than what was was original. Um, I'm not that familiar with the current version of Yellowjack, unfortunately. I'm, of course, more of a Spider-Man fan, so I don't know everything. But now, this is the interesting thing, though, uh, for a fact of Henry Pym, or Hank Pym. But he began experimenting with robotics and created a robot with the potential for high intelligence. But the robot turned against his creator, hypnotizing Pym and escaping from his laboratory, and later became one of the Avengers' greatest adversaries under the name of Ultron. Yes, this doesn't have anything to do with Tony Stark. It was Henry Pym, Hank Pym. He is the one who created it. Uh, But he did come out, of course, his persona, as we were saying earlier, of the Yellow Jacket. And eventually, though, the the Ant-Man suit was stolen by a thief uh, named Scott Lang, who his daughter had been kidnapped. And so he was trying to rescue his daughter. And uh, so he stole the the suit and became the new uh, Ant-Man. Of course, this was during the time... Uh, Pym observed the theft, and in his guise as Yellow Jacket, followed Lang, curious to see what use he would he would put the the suit to. Um, but of course, you know, Lang broke into Cross, garbed as Ant Man. Lang broke into Cross, you know, just you know the business, and discovered that Doctor Sondheim was held prisoner by Darren Cross, later the supervillain Crossfire, president of CTE, who needed Sondheim to correct his own heart condition and rescuing Sondheim and defeating Cross, Lang was relieved when Sondheim was able to save the life of his daughter. Lang intended to return the Ant-Man costume to its owner and turn himself in, but Henry Pym offered to let him keep them, provided Lang put them to lawful use. So that's, of course, how the guise of Ant-Man was passed along. Now, as for Darren Cross, of course, you know, I did mention he was known as the supervillain Crossfire at one point. Um, well, let's talk about Darren Cross for a little bit. Uh, he was a self-made millionaire, and he was the head of his company, Cross Technological Enterprises. I mentioned CTE earlier. Uh, he had a rare heart condition, and he used his own technology to create an experimental nuclear organic pacemaker to save his life. And although a success, the pacemaker mutated Darren's body and gave him superhuman abilities. A side effect of this mutation was that Darren would quickly overuse and burn out his heart. And after multiple heart transplants were performed, uh, each heart, you know, each one was removed when it was overused. He would overuse the pacemaker and have to replace it. Uh, So he was actually desperate, and he's the one who kidnapped a heart surgeon named Dr. Erica Sondheim, which I I mentioned previously, uh, to replace his damaged heart. And this is where he kidnapped the donors from the slums, uh, which... You know, this is where he kidnapped the daughter of Scott Lang, Cassie. Uh, and, of course, Scott Lang stole the Ant-Man suit, as we mentioned before. But uh, when he goes to rescue his daughter, Cassie, there was a battle between Darren and Ant-Man, which resulted in Darren burning out his heart and dying. Uh, and then Sondheim revealing when Ant-Man interrupted the operation, she replaced his old heart with, with an, uh, rather than getting a new one. He replaced it with an old one. And so the company that he had there was actually taken over by Darren's son, Augustine Cross. So, yeah, a little different from the film, but uh, after his death, Darren's body was kept in a cryogenic state, and his son Augustine, of course, became obsessed with bringing him back to life. This is a comic book, after all. And eventually, he forced Dr. Seindheim to help, and Augustine planned to use the heart of Cassie Lang, which could change size due to exposure to pim particles. I'm not sure when that happened, but in order to replace his father's, uh, and as it could withstand the unique conditions. 
So while Scott Lang infiltrated Cross Technological Enterprises, or CTE, to rescue his daughter, he came across a rebirth, Darren Cross. Darren engaged in combat against Ant-Man while the hero tried to buy some time for Sondheim to transplant another heart to Cassie. Cross was ultimately forced to flee with his son when the pin particles now in his body caused him to shrink down. So he never actually became yellow jacket for anything that i can find but of course in this film which uh, now let's actually talk about the film uh but uh, some interesting little bits that i would like to share first is i do have some recordings of the cast talking a little bit about their roles uh so and also some of the themes of the film and i thought they were very interesting so i wanted to share some of those with you uh so first let's hear from michael douglas it's, it still comes down to a, a, a script that um, that is absorbing enough and that you can understand. And I think what Marvel does, which is really important and which I had to take a big responsibility for, is um, the exp- exposition or laying out your, your plot line so people can understand. Because there's nothing more frustrating than sort of being behind the eight ball and watching action and sequences happen without really understanding... Uh, what it is, I also think of of immersing it, grounding it um, in a, in a family stories. Basically, a story of Hank Pym reconciling with his daughter Hope, played by Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd's character Scott, reconciling with his family is something that, uh, that that audiences could could really get. And and then this. Um, this phenomenal uh, and and the imaginative ability of getting small, mm-hmm. <laughs> getting down to ant size, and it showed it was filmed from perspective I don't think we've really ever seen before. I think that was the one that really um, really impressed uh, me in terms of seeing the effects when it was it was done. Okay, also in this cast was Evangeline Lilly, who played Hope Van Dyme, uh, which was supposed to be the daughter of of Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne, uh, which to my knowledge, they never had a daughter. Uh, I, you know, I'm doing a little bit of research. I'm going to see if there, if it ever came around, but I've never heard of her before. Uh, so, but like I said, I'm more of a Spider-Man fan. So I've kept over to that side, but, uh, so that's her character, but uh, here's what Evangeline Lilly had to say a little bit about her character. You know, I, I think that, um, that's sort of one of life's most interesting and wonderful mysteries is that sometimes the most obvious answer is not the the best path and doesn't actually result in the greatest good and i and i feel like this story is um partly hope's journey in learning that that um she might feel like she can do anything and she's invincible and the world is is you know at her fingertips because she's capable and she's strong and she's talented and she's you know a, a muay thai fighter and all these <laughs> things i mean she's got a great resume but um you know really at the at the core of it what Hank's looking for in his Ant-Man is what what does your heart want and does your heart have the humility to take this power without it corrupting you and her pride is so out of control I mean her ego is so big that he I think is aware to a certain extent that she has a long way to go before she's learned the humility that Scott's learned by having his whole life and his family taken away from him and the suffering that he's been through mm-hmm. And last but not least, Paul Rudd, who actually is a native of around my area, around the Kansas City area. I think he was born actually more around like Overland Park, Kansas. Uh, I forget where exactly he's from, but he's a local guy for me, so that's pretty cool. Uh, but uh, he's got some interesting things to say also about playing Ant-Man. 
Well, I love the idea of playing um, a, a superhero. And first of all, playing a superhero in a Marvel movie is a really cool thought. Uh, but that he was a guy that was an everyman. I mean, he would, has no special ability. He wasn't born with any kind of special ability. And that he is a guy who's really down on his luck um, and is trying his best and has made a lot of just questionable decisions in his life. And I thought all, the, all those chips that were stacked against him are were interesting and it would be fun to play a character that had to deal with that kind of stuff. Well, yes, I have confirmed that Hope was a creation for the Marvel Cinematic Universe or as Marvel likes to call it, Earth 199999. And even though they're having a uh, Secret Wars thing going on where they're combining a lot of their universes and everything, this is still an alternate universe and Hope's first appearance is slated as being this movie, uh, Earth 199999. That is five nines for anyone who is keeping score. Well, that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Kind of nice that they're trying to keep it as a separate thing. Uh, and you can actually go on Marvel's page and find out all the different history that they're now adding into this alternate world. Uh, it's actually very interesting because they've got a history, a timeline going back to a Big Bang. And uh, talking about with the, the origin of the Infinity Stones as told in this story. So it's very interesting. But anyways, about the film itself. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I, my wife was really kind of reluctant to go in this one, and uh, since people had been saying it was similar to Guardians of the Galaxy, and she had been reluctant to see that film as well, I thought, well, you know, let's go and have some fun, and I'm going to review it for the podcast, and uh, and uh, she really enjoyed it. Uh, I think especially she enjoyed the ants, uh, the way that they've presented them. They're actually kind of cute, the way they're presented, and uh, they present a little bit of science about some of the different types of ants that they'll be using, although they didn't quite get everything exact. Uh, she she had to make it a point. She had to tell me that the uh, fire ants don't do that architectural thing that you will see in the film. Uh, and I don't want to necessarily spoil it, uh, but you know, yeah, they have the, the, the fire ants where they kind of structure together, you know, and make shapes or whatever, uh, in very helpful ways. They will organize them, you know, they can form like a chain and, and, and you can grab on if you were that small and, and they whisk you away. So, uh, you know, a lot of kind of fun things with the ants themselves. And, of course, they did keep the idea of Hank Pym having developed a method of, you know, he wears a thing in his ear in this that he can send the electronic signals and whatever to, you know, communicate with the ants. And there's a lot of fun of actually seeing the ants, you know, doing things for him, uh, bringing mainly we'll talk about sugar cubes being brought for his tea or his coffee and stuff like that. And a lot of the really fun things that the ants are doing in this film. But this one, of course, takes Darren Cross and he was supposed to be a pro protege of Hank Pym and is has been trying to develop uh, the way of shrinking organic stuff. He can shrink non-organic, but he can, if, every time he tries to shrink something organic, he makes a really disgusting mess, uh, which he finds is a great way to kill people who, uh, who dare question you, which basically helps to establish him as a villain. Uh, because the main thing, him, Hank Pym's goals from the beginning of the film, which we have a flashback into the 80s, he doesn't want his technology really to be weaponized. And, you know, he says it's just going to be chaos if everybody's shrinking themselves down to fight wars or something. You know, it's he, I guess he just has horrible visions of that happening. And so, you know, he's rightly to be concerned in a new technology using in ways that he did not intend. Uh, but I do like they do take into effect uh, or take into mind that there is a history of Hank Pym and Janet as being the Ant-Man and Wasp. 
And so they have that set up like that had all taken place at some point during the Cold War. Uh, we get to see a little bit during this this you know flashback to the, the 1980s, a uh, an aging Peggy Carter who's working with Shield. We also get to see Howard Stark. But the interesting thing they they went and got the Howard Stark from Iron Man Two. What, how we got used to see him in at first in that film strip. They got him to play the older Howard Stark because that's what we're used to. And, uh, of course, because you know, the other films, you know, let's see, Captain America and in an Agent Peggy Carter series, we've been seeing a younger Howard Stark. And they could have, I guess, done some makeup to age him. But since we've already been presented with an older Howard Stark, it just makes sense. But I, I kind of appreciated that, I guess, if you can tell. But, uh so yeah, when with Darren Cross now, who's developing this technology, because he found out about it, and he's found some file footage of Hank as the original Ant Man, and Hank, of course, will not own up to that ever happening. He says, "Oh no, that's a myth and everything that never happened." But uh, of course, he fears what Darren Cross will do with this technology, uh, and so he, in his own way, sets up Scott Lang, who has just come out of prison, wanting to start a new life, is, is struggling to find a new life, trying to be able to find a way to be able to reconnect with his daughter, but. Uh, his ex-wife's fiance really is just not having it. Uh, that that does change a little bit towards the end, of course. It's a little predictable on some of the things with this film. But uh, so then you have Scott Lang, though. Like I said, Hank Pym kind of sets him up to come in and steal the suit because he needs somebody to help him stop Darren Cross. And uh, really, it's it's not this huge villainous scheme throughout the film, but you just know Darren Cross is a very bad person because you've seen him just murder people who question him. Uh, but later on, I do not want to surprise you or spoil the surprise, although you won't be that surprised, with uh, who Darren Cross is actually working with and who one character you're introduced in the flashback and who he, he's actually a part of because he is supposed to be a S.H.I.E.L.D agent who maybe has branched away from shield which may tell you everything you might want to know already about um, what's happened with this guy overall though lots of fun very funny uh really set things up i think for a continuation of uh they did say ant-man will return but they didn't say where so it could be an ant-man 2 uh, could I would I was expect him to show up in some more Marvel films as part of the Avengers, uh, but yeah, lots of fun, great effects, uh, a little bit of language if you have your kiddos in there. Uh, how were kids reacting to the film? Uh, I can only say anything for the kid that was sitting next to me, a couple of seats down, who was just fidgety. We ended up very very close to the screen. I mean, right there, we were front row, and this kid and his mother sat on the very far edge, and so they were in the corner. So I don't think he was able to keep his attention focused on the film, and so he was always shifting around and started talking, asking questions. And then about halfway through the movie, his mother took him out of there. Um, I think, of course, as a typical child, you know, at a certain age, they are only when something is happening fast or whatever, they don't quite, you know, they're not able to focus their attention, especially when you're clear off to the side of the screen. So the storyline stuff was really not effective for him. But, uh, and there's, you know, like I said, a little, little bit of language and everything, but overall, I'd say this is a pretty good family movie, so you can bring your, your family and have a good time. Everybody's going to laugh at some of the things, especially what the ants do. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much a spoiler-free way of just saying go check out this movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's a great entry into the Marvel Universe. It's doing rather well out there, but could always do better. So yeah, get out there and check it out. Other bits of Disney movie news that has been coming around has been, of course, a live-action Aladdin film, which, from what I'm hearing, sounds like it's going to be a prequel film focusing on the genie. Uh, who do you get to play the genie, though? <laughs> you can't you can't get Robin Williams. Uh, so I... 
you know, I think a lot of us have gotten to a point where we were, we're looking at the Disney remaking all of their animated classics into live-action films as sometimes a good thing, sometimes not, you know? Um, I didn't get a chance to see Cinderella. Uh, it looked like it was going to be good. I know a lot of people have enjoyed it. I do want to check it out. But uh, I, I think part of us, every time they do this, it kind of frightens us because we love the animated classics and we're thinking, oh, don't try to remake it, you know, and live action, it maybe not be as magical and stuff. And they're they're really running full headlong into this. I mean, we've got a Beauty and the Beast, a Jungle Book. Uh, golly, it, the list has gotten so long, I can't even keep track. Uh, Disney music fans, the time has come. It's the Neverland Battle of the Disney Bands. Your vote will determine this year's top five Disney songs. Vote now at poll.neverlandpodcast.com. That's P-O-L-L dot neverlandpodcast.com. And listen to the Neverland Podcast to see which Disney band rises above the competition. There has been some sort of an agreement. It's going on. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are going to be visiting Gotham City, apparently. So there's actually a DC and uh, IGN are, uh, was reporting about this, that uh, Gotham City and uh, I believe Boom Studios is currently publishing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but they're going to have a collaboration, and the Ninja Turtles are going to meet Batman. Now, I wonder, though, is this, is Donatello going to be back for this? Because they killed him off last we heard anything about uh, the comics. But uh, I just found that to be very interesting. But also, speaking of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if you are watching the Nickelodeon series, David Tennant, the former Doctor and Doctor Who, is going to be voicing a character. Now, I didn't want to dig in and find out what that character was, because I didn't want to spoil anything for myself. And besides, I'm getting into the non-Disney tracks here. So, But these were just interesting stories and things I heard about this week that I thought you'd be interested in. Uh, but you know what I want to do now? I want to dive into some interesting things that happened at Comic-Con. Uh, there were uh, quite a few panels, actually. You know, um, Of course, there was a Star Wars panel. And, of course, uh, there was a Peggy Carter panel and a Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. panel. Now, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. panel, I really didn't get any new information. I didn't really find it that interesting, so I kind of just, I didn't grab any clips around it. But, um, you know, the Star Wars had some very fun bits of time there with the original cast, and we're going to save that special moment for last. They really didn't give any new information to us. Uh, They did bring out a character, well, a creature at least, that they're calling like Bobby Joe, uh, just to show us how cool these practical effects are that J.J. Abrams has been putting in. Uh, so very fun panel. Uh, I will definitely share that at the end. But before we get there, I kind of want to work my way up to it. Uh, but they did have a great panel uh, about Agent Peggy Carter, and they did talk a little bit to a couple of the cast members. Uh, of course, the major cast members. Uh, I believe it's James D.R.C. who's playing Jarvis, and of course Haley Atwell who's been playing Peggy Carter. Uh, so they asked a couple of questions during a Marvel time of where they also did share a trailer for the upcoming Deadpool, which I understand now how they've they've managed to relaunch the world with changing things in X Men uh, with that last movie. Uh, They've like rebooted the entire X-Men universe and changed a lot of things, which you'll hear about with X-Men Age of Apocalypse panel, which I'm going to share some audio from that as well. I had to do a lot of editing down on that. 
but yeah, lots of fun ad- audio. <laughs> I'm just going to get around and play some of it for you. Uh, this, Like I said, I did have to kind of pick and choose and try to find what I thought was probably the more interesting things of what they had to say. Uh, but here we go. Let's start with a, a little hearing something from about Agent Peggy Carter. When we started out the hunt for Jarvis, uh, James, you had some... Uh, questions. I, I, I think I was going to go with misgivings, um, but you certainly had to sort of know, as an actor, how to play this part. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you first started out, when you first got a call from us and we all said, come play, please come play. I, I, well, I was slightly worried because in the, um, in the pilot, Jarvis is making a souffle. <laughs> and... Um, I can't actually make a souffle. And I I, I was worried that I would be required to actually do... Any of you who've made a souffle will know it's a a complex process and you've got to time it just right. So my apprehension mainly revolved around souffle making. And um, I can do a perfect spotted dick. That's an English pudding. Um, But I'm not so good at the souffles. So uh, we, we had a long conversation about that, and then they explained to me what acting is, uh, <laughs> and, and that I would not... In what fact, was great, in fact, though, is, is, that, is that no one's ever played an English butler before, so this was a, a right. new thing for you. To I'm be able treading to do. very new territory here. <laughs> um, and actually, the thing that, the thing that really uh, sold it to me was when Michelle and Tara, Chris and Jeff said to me, oh, no, no, but he's going to be with her on the missions. And I said, oh, great, so there's going to be some fighting. And, uh, and they went, we were done. <laughs> yeah, Haley's going to be doing a lot of fighting. <laughs> and I said, and Jarvis will be behind her doing some fighting. And they went, That's how Chris actually talks, just to let you know. And... and Having read the script, there was, there, there was so funny what they had already written for Jarvis. And I've never actually had an opportunity to do anything comedic on film before. And I wasn't at all sure that I could do it. Uh, but it turns out... You guys think that, that you can I do it? Have to... well, thank you for the vote of confidence. It turns out I just had to be my usual... Wally of herself, and it, and it would work out just fine. Uh, you actually brought up something that, that uh, I should also mention was that you read the first script, and that, that script was written by uh, two of our other executive producers that we're also very lucky to have, and that's Chris Marcus and Steve McFeely. They also could not be here because having written Captain America the First Avenger and having written Captain America the Winter Soldier, they have just finished writing and are on the set at Captain America Civil War. So, uh, we just have a little bit of a pedigree here, a little bit that we're very proud of. Um, speaking of very proud of, Healy Atwell. Uh, aside from being the only person I'd let take my hat, uh, tell us about Peggy. Like, you've now played Peggy. Uh, well, you've played Peggy in two features, a short, and eight episodes, soon now to be ten more episodes. What is it about that character that uh, takes you off the big screen and into our homes? 
Uh, I think, first of all, the quality of the writing. And it was very clear in the script that, um, you know, we'd seen aspects of Peggy in the first Avenger, but on, in this show in particular, there were so many nuances of character, and she was dynamic and resourceful and fun and sexy and vulnerable and all these qualities that, that uh, I really enjoy playing. And so I, um, I jumped at the chance to do it for the very reason that also I, I'd known the Marvel team for five years and love them dearly and um, she's just kind of kind of taken over my life in such an amazing way she's quite fearless and I often find when I'm having moments of kind of doubting what I'm doing I think that she she wouldn't she just goes for it so she kind of thrusts herself into situations with such kind of um, kind of wild abandonment that uh, that I I, uh, I'd love that opportunity so it's changed my life okay now moving on from Peggy Carter like I said, there was some a really fun panel there for X-Men Age of Apocalypse, and they have recast everybody. Uh, and so the entire cast was out there. Uh, Brian Singer was out there. Uh, but before, of course, the cast came out, Hugh Jackman wanted to kind of say farewell, as this is the last time, time you'll be seeing him as Wolverine. It's 16 years since uh, that day, almost. And uh, i got to tell you, playing the legend that is Wolverine is the greatest part I have ever had in my life. I'm biased, I think he's the greatest comic book character ever made, but ever. And uh, I have to tell you, I'm here today for one major reason, that is to thank all of you, the fans, because you are the greatest fans any actor could ever dream of having. You are the most loyal, most passionate, you are definitely the most honest, sometimes brutally honest, yes? When we haven't always got it right, you've told us, but you've always been there. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I also wanted to say thanks to the uh, worldwide team that is 20th Century Fox, um, led by the man who's been there from the beginning, Jim Giannopoulos. Um, hang on, this is sounding like an obituary. I hate this. I'm sorry. This is t- I mean, look, I know they killed off Wolverine in the comic books recently, but hey, in the movies, he's not dead yet. What does that mean? What is in store? Well, what is in store? I want to tell you so bad. But as I promised, this next time is going to be my last time of putting on the claws. One last time. And there it is. <laughs> and now, of course, the entire cast was invited out. And uh, pretty much everything they shared I thought was really great. Uh, I did have to edit down for some language. And you might hear your Chewbacca censoring some people every once in a while. But uh, here you go. Great panel. Enjoy. Here we go. Let's start off with, uh, as Quicksilver, Evan Peters. There he comes. All right. As Havoc, Lucas Till. As Jubilee, Lana Condor. As Nightcrawler, Cody Smith-McPhee. As Cyclops, Ty Sheridan. Jean Grey, Sophie Turner. Beast, Nicholas Holt. Professor X, James McAvoy. Mystique, Jennifer Lawrence. As Magneto, Michael Fassbender. As Apocalypse, Oscar Isaac. As Psylocke, Olivia Munn. 
as Angel Ben Hardy. As Storm, Alexandra Ship. And writer-producer Simon Kinberg. X-Men Apocalypse takes place 10 years after X-Men Days of Future Past in a completely different world. 1983, uh, world has now accepted mutants uh, thanks to the great heroism of uh, uh, Raven Mystique uh, who prevented uh, this gentleman from uh, causing a war between mutants and humans. Mutants are for the most part accepted and embraced by society in some places, not in every place. And, uh, and so it takes place in that world. And that's where we find our characters. And we also find our characters in all very different places. And I guess they can talk about that themselves. Uh, Mr. McAvoy, uh, you, you have the dome now. I have so... the full dome. <laughs> How did it feel to, to actually take on that iconic part of the road? Did it make you feel like I am finally Professor X? It's good because I can now say Patrick Stewart don't have to on me. Uh, <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's nice. It's what I thought I'd always do, like right at the beginning of, of X-Men First Class. But... Um, Obviously, we had different ideas, so it's nice to finally, even though we've messed with the character and we've put him through, put him in different guises and given him slightly different personas than you've seen him in the cartoons and in the comic books and in the movies that we've seen already ever since 1999 and 2000, it's nice to finally adopt that iconic look and pay homage to everything that made all these movies possible whilst also trying to give it something different each time as well. Excellent. Uh, for, for Jennifer Lawrence, is myst are, you, are you more mystique or a raven in this, in this film, do you think? Um, I'm more raven. Because as we said in the movie that you haven't seen yet, um, <laughs> she didn't want to be the face of a world that she felt like didn't exist. So is it, I mean, for Michael Fassbender, oh. which, which side can you say where Magneto... Soak it in, let it happen. Uh, <laughs> where, where is Magneto? Which side? Can you hear me okay down there? Yeah, I think he's kind of a guy that plays both sides. Yeah? <laughs> Goes both ways. He's a ways. little misguided. Yeah. Uh, it depends, you know. It's like, depends on the day of the week. Uh, <laughs> no, it, you know, he's always that kind of ambiguous sort of villain. So uh, when we meet him in this first film, it's, he's more of a... Uh, you know, a simple guy. He's just sort of living a normal life and uh, has kind of hung up his cape <laughs> and his evil ways. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's where we sort of discover him and then things happen and he gets sort of drawn back in, as Al Pacino says in The Third God Godfather. So it's... The best one, really. The best one, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Andy Garcia. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's... It's sort of a little bit of both, really. As always with Magneto, I think, you know, there's not, you know, his motives are in some ways justifiable. It's his methods that are kind of questionable. So um, we see both sides of him here. Yeah, I mean, because I never, I don't, I mean, he does, he does things that seem villainous, but I don't, I don't know if he's necessarily a, I mean, I feel like there is a, he's a human character that just seems to want things. And sometimes it's hard to tell if those are for himself or just for, for, you know, all of mutant kind. You know? Well, I think, you know, what you're seeing is somebody who's developed by his experiences in life. And, you know, as we know from, you know, a young age, he experiences a concentration camp and sees, you know, his loved ones getting taken away from him. So it develops a certain personality. And, uh, 
And this is another level of that in, in this story, Apocalypse. You know, he's trying to sort of lead a normal life. He falls in love, has a family. And uh, from then on, things happen. Excellent. So, uh, Oscar Isaac, what can you tell us about Apocalypse? What do you want to know? Well, the whole movie right now, <laughs> if you would tell me. But if okay. not, what are you allowed to say? Um, well, yeah, I, I play Apocalypse. He looked pretty cool, right? <laughs> Am I right? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, he's... You know, it's basically this world that we have. Uh, it's, it's not the world that should have been. God's just been asleep. And God wakes up and, and realizes what, what's happened and says it's got to change. And part of that is this, this character who, in the, in the comic books, he's got so many powers, so many uh, strange things that have never really been specified. And so for us, it was important to figure that out. Uh, but really the big one, I think, is the power of persuasion because he has to go to incredibly powerful people like Psylocke and Storm and, and Magneto, Angel, and, and convince them that uh, his way is the right way to go. And much like a cult leader, he, he sees um, people that need something, that are wanting something, and, uh, and exploits that to a certain extent. And he gets these followers and, uh, uh, you know, instills his plan. Excellent. So just because our, our panel is, uh, because it's very expansive, um, can I just, I'll just kind of ask everyone the same question, if that's okay, and we'll just start with you, Evan, which is, who, uh, who is your character to you? Like, when, you know, when you would go into work, like, who, who do you see uh, when you go into work? So who's Quicksilver to you? Uh, me in a wig. <laughs> <laughs> me in a gray silver wig. Uh, who runs pretty fast. Yep. Uh, uh, but isn't going Great anywhere. Answer, what else could I say? I don't know what I could say. It's in the jeans, darling. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is that too tough a question for everyone yeah, to answer, really Brian Singer? Yeah. It was saying he runs too fast but never seems to be going anywhere. Okay. What? Like, what I mean, eventually he does, but that's kind of who he is, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Lucas, how does, how does Havoc fit into You're in your parents' it. basement for 10 years, dude. How does he fit into everything? Yeah. Or what does he mean to me? Yeah, but what does he mean to you, and how does he fit in? Do both. You know what, man? I was, uh, I've been practicing, like, uh, how many fans of Dragon Ball Z are in here right now? Probably a few. Uh, Probably more than a few. So I've been practicing at Kamehameha since I've been, like, eight years old. And I thought that was how it was going to be on first class. And it was, like, hula hoops. A little disappointed, uh, but uh, I will. I will say that I've been given a little freedom, and I've I've accomplished all the dreams that I've had as a little kid. <laughs> That's what havoc means to me. Oh, please, please. Uh, have you been up on Hall H panel before? You know what's? No, I haven't. My what? first Comic Con six years ago, I was up in the rafters. My buddy has a video of me. It was Peter Jackson and James Cameron, and they were on the panel. Yeah. And they go from them up there, and I was somewhere up there. Right? Uh, you'd be crawling around in the lighting, which is deadly. Wait, I don't no, know no, if that's no. a... Wait, six years ago it was different. I swear I'm not lying. No, no, of course. Was there a second story here? I don't know. I'm looking up there. I can't see now, but no, there was. Oh, wait, my God. There's like 2,000 dead people up in the rafters. <laughs> that's You're where not I was. supposed to be up there. Uh, Lana, what can you tell us about Jubilee? Uh, um, this is mud. Hi. <laughs> um... <laughs> I think Jubilee to me is the cool girl that like, God, I've been 
Yeah, I don't think I'll ever probably be. She has a sick sense of fashion and an amazing jacket that's like so yellow and out there and bright that I just, she's just cool. Good. That's, that's what she is. That's, that's all you need. To me. Yeah, there you uh, go. Cody, Nightcrawler? Uh, yes, Nightcrawler. Um, I'd have to say I, I relate to him a little bit. He's had a bit of an emotional uh, upbringing dealing with his mutant aspects, as all mutants do. <laughs> But uh, he finds himself and owns himself, and um, he has a, a great stance in his faith, and he's also extremely happy all the time, and I think uh, that's why his fans relate to him. So, yeah. Excellent. Perfect answer. Uh, Ty, what can you tell us about Cyclops? Uh, yeah, Cyclops. Uh, I guess... <laughs> um, he's, uh, yeah, he shoots beams out of his eyes, and... He's angry, but I think what's cool about this is that the, the younger generation of mutants kind of get to explore these characters and who they are and how they became who we know them as in the previous X-Men. Yeah. All right, good. That was a very politically correct answer there. It's like stepping all around the... And further, I feel peace for all. Like there's a... And babies are good. <laughs> Hashtag puppies. Uh, <laughs> Sophie, what, did you feel? What was the responsibility coming into this uh, to this film? You know, as as Jean, what? Uh, how did you? How did you approach it? And you know, did you understand the weight of it coming in? Um, I felt quite a lot of responsibility, I suppose. I mean, Farmka portrayed Jean so beautifully that um, I was just kind of like, gotta live up to that one, don't I? Um, but I mean, for Jean, it's exciting because I get a whole new kind of perspective on her in the way that um, when we last saw her, she's like grade five mutant, right? She's like powerful. Um, And it's exciting to be able to figure out how she, you know, got that way and how this alienated young girl becomes one of the most powerful mutants um, in X-Men history. I'm not bragging, but she's pretty. Sweet. Nicholas, how, how now that you now that you've lived with Beast for a while, uh, where where are you with him? I can't concentrate because I'm still psyched about the Deadpool trailer. Sick. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Hank McCoy, aka uh, Beast. For me personally, I grew up watching the cartoon, so he's the guy that I loved in the cartoon, and, and now I get to pretend to be him. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. James? Uh, I, I just, I don't really see him as, as Charles Xavier or Professor X, I just see him as, as Patrick Stewart. And, um, <laughs> and anything, anything that he did, I, I try and do a copy, you know, I try and make it better. But, um, <laughs> but no, to be fair, he had some moves and stuff, but he's like, he's really old. And um, <laughs> oh, 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 I'm only joking. He's amazing, and I oh, I, he paid for my house. Um, <laughs> you know, if he hadn't did what he did in the 90, in 99, 2000, then I wouldn't be doing this now, and I've, I've huge homage to him. I see Charles as empathy. You know, that's his greatest superpower for me, and uh, he is the ability to care and understand what other people are going through, and that's only been increased by all the 
chaos and trauma that he's been put through in the last few films. So every time he's connecting with somebody, it's profound. And that's the most important thing he has, way beyond mind control and way beyond the ability to read other people's thoughts. But uh, yeah, he cares. Excellent. So just jumping over, because we talked to Jen and, and Michael and Oscar. Uh, Mun, Olivia, uh, someone's, someone's come a long way since Attack of the Show, Olivia Mun. We used to, we used to cover Comic-Con. We didn't sleep for days. I know. It's, I mean, what, how, what, is, what did it feel like to come into this? I mean, like, you used to cover this kind of stuff, and now you're a part of it. I know, I know. It's like, it feels like the mothership calling me home. <laughs> this feels like, every, it's like the coolest thing ever. And every time I, like, I get so excited to put on the suit, and I get so excited to, to train and do my sword training and, and my stunts and do all, it just feels just like, it's just, honestly, it's like the coolest thing. Ben. <laughs> um, dude, I have wings, and that's the best thing about Angel. I feel like, to me, I feel like Angel is like every angry or bitter thought I've ever had uh, just embodied in one person. So, yeah, it's great fun to play. Excellent. Alexandra, uh, coming in as an iconic character. Hey, well, guys. How is this? How is this experience for you? It's been pretty epic. You know, with Storm, she comes into this and she's kind of lost. She doesn't know what she wants. She doesn't know who she is or how powerful she can really be. And, you know, she meets someone like Apocalypse who kind of represents what a lot of, um, a lot of people in Cairo look for, which is like a god, you know. And she's just finding her way and hopefully she can find her way to the X-Mansion. Okay, and last but not least... Here's some Star Wars. First, uh, we can hear from J.J. Abrams, uh, just him and Lawrence Kasdan both. You'll hear from them. Of course, Lawrence Kasdan was the screenwriter for The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. You'll hear him talk about that a little bit. And then J.J. Abrams, just what one of the things I'm loving about the new films is that J.J. is such a fan. And so I... Uh, I just know he's done a wonderful job, and I'm very excited to see what he's done for The Force Awakens. But here's J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah, well, the guy that brought me in is, is the genius that brings us all here, was George Lucas. Yeah. He was absolute breakthrough monster genius, and none of us would be here if it weren't for him. And he call, uh, called me and said, will you do this for me? And we started to do Empire Strikes Back, and then we did... Return of the Jedi, and then 30 years passed, and those movies just like never went out of my life or my consciousness. And then a call came again and said, will you come back and meet these characters again 30 years later? So there wasn't even any disjunction between my life and this uh, timeline. And when we got JJ to say he would do that, I went berserk because I- In a bad way. In a bad way. I thought he was the funniest, most talented, most perfect choice for this movie. And then he and I wound up spending a year walking around, writing, figuring it out, and it's been a total gas. JJ, how do you, how do you push the fandom out of the way to focus on the work when you're working with, with Larry? Well, I mean, Star Wars is, uh, like you said, um, it's something that is so deeply ingrained and so important to so many people um, you know, I asked my mom to make me a Jawa costume for my 13th Halloween, and uh, um, I, I did the eyes, but she did the costume, uh, and it was great, and uh, I, I, I've been a fan since I was a, a, a kid, a little kid, and there is nothing normal 
about getting to write a movie with Lawrence Kasdan. There's nothing normal about getting to work with Kathleen Kennedy or to direct a Star Wars movie. I mean, I've sat down with John Williams to show him scenes from a Star Wars movie he hadn't seen yet that I directed. There's nothing normal <laughs> about any of what's been happening, uh, including this moment. And by the way, you guys look awesome, and thank you for waiting so long to be here. It's really yes, awesome. You. And of course, later on in the panel, uh, they they did bring out the dark side pretty much, and had uh, some of the actors, including the actor actor playing Kylo Ren, which I was pretty excited for a question they asked him to talk about Kylo Ren, and he really he didn't say anything about it at all uh, they're really keeping clammed up uh but uh, they do have a woman there who is a general in the uh the new order or the first order as they're calling it now but the this is one of the ones they have stormtroopers and they're kind of look like the empire but i guess they're not i'm sure there's a connection which we'll learn about you could probably learn about some of this that they do have the books they are now releasing that are canon uh they have uh, I believe the first one comes out this month. There is going to be books now bridging the gap between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Uh, I'm going to try to track these down. I'd like to read these myself. I'm pretty excited about that. But the fun part about this panel is the original cast came out. And not just Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill this time. Harrison Ford actually came out. I think this is the first time he's ever appeared at a Comic-Con or a convention of any type. And he is genuinely excited about this film, which is great. Uh, so here's that audio right now. Carrie Fisher! You came. Oh. Okay. <laughs> what are you doing here? What are the odds? <laughs> All right. Hi, Carrie Fisher. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> hi, so, my darling. How are you? Love the hair. Okay. So, can you give us a little... I'm sure you've been answering this question a lot, but we're all here. and I Did feel I like... know it was going to be that big of a hit? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I was thinking that, but I, I was afraid to ask it. But So my other question uh, is, what, what was the feeling like for you when you walked on the set and you saw this all come to life again? I mean, I know you've, you've lived with it for a long time, but to see it so tangibly and to be a part of it again, what was that feeling like? It was like a flashback, kind of, you know, I thought... They were right about the uh, acid flashbacks. <laughs> no, uh, I didn't think that it was going to uh, happen again. I had to check and see if, you know, it was just me. Is my voice coming out of my mouth? Uh, no, it was, we just, I always said it was a little bit like before, only we looked more melted this time. <laughs> uh, but in a good way, that kind of force melted mm -hmm. and did it feel like you just picked up where you left off before did it feel like a new experience well sort of like uh we picked up where we left off but we left off a while ago so it was a long leave off and then and then we're back now there were certain times when the three of us were standing together and it was hard to sort of be there and then observe an observer so, but we're the legacy players. We're known as the legacy people. 
So I always think it was kind of like a tap dancing troupe or something like that. But it was great. And it was great having the new people because they do it faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, speaking of legacy people, maybe I should bring out Mark Hamill. Mr. Hamill. Yes, yes. We have a picture of you from 1976, which I'm sure people have seen. Can we throw that up there? There's you from 1976 hey! with the original. I have that. It's an original Ralph McQuarrie design. I have. I have one of those. Uh, and so this was before Star Wars came out, and you were at a fan convention because that was actually a part of your life before. What are you telling people about Star Wars before it's come out? You're like, I'm in a space movie. I hope you see it. Like, what do you say? at that point? Well, we only had photographs. There was no footage. And I went with Charlie Lippincott, and I think it was in Kansas. We had R2-D2 as a prop. We had C-3PO, although Anthony Daniels wasn't inside the costume. But as you can imagine, with only 25 photographs of various scenes in the movie, it wasn't really easy to describe what it was. Um, but... My enthusiasm for it was just off the charts, and uh, uh, I've been a fan. I think my first convention I ever went to was at the Ambassador Hotel in 1972. So I was, you know, uh, you know, I've been a fan since I caught the black and white King Kong on television when I was five or six years old, and I think the fans understand that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm one of them. And they're, obviously, over my career, they've been a really important part of, of, of my life. And, uh, you know, because without you guys, we're nothing. Is there anything, I mean, this is, this is a very momentous occasion, having you guys together on stage like this. I mean, is there anything, a message that you have to the fans who've been on this journey since 1976? Is there anything to take away from it? Wow. <laughs> um, I, I, I just, I, I, like I say, the, well, keep coming back, yes. But no, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's hard to describe because when I meet you on the street, everyone has a story. I met my wife at the premiere of Jedi or my son is named Luke or whatever it is. It's such a personal connection. And it's, it's very moving to me. It's sometimes hard to absorb the impact you could have had. It's almost like an out-of-body experience, uh, you know, because uh, uh, it, it's, I see it put together. It's not me. It's Luke. Uh, but uh, uh, I've, I've never taken it for granted. And like I say, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm moved by the uh, the connection to the world. I mean, now suddenly you become uh, you're a friend to the to everyone. I mean, my my wife and I went to Tahiti on our honeymoon, thinking there's nobody gonna know about this movie uh, way out in this paradise. And we were on the back porch of the little hut on the water, and I saw a motorboat coming towards the back of. You know, to, you know, coming towards us. And as it got closer and closer and closer, I thought I was losing my mind because at the, 
at the helm was a guy in a Darth Vader mask. <laughs> in Tahiti. Turns out somebody bought it in Hawaii and, and, and came to Tahiti. They were filming a movie. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis was making Hurricane. And the accountant on the film had done Star Wars. He said, you know what really surprised Mark? Drive up to his hut in your Darth Vader mask. <laughs> so, uh, no, but it's true. When you hear people that they come and they say, you know, I waited to show my daughter. I wanted to make sure I showed my kids. It was something that you can do as a family, but yeah. you want to make sure you show them at the right time and then you watch them like, if we don't like the same character, I'm not going to like my kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a generational thing now. So, you know, my son who was born when we were doing Empire Strikes Back now is, uh, he's the real Star Wars expert in my family. I'd hate to tell you guys, I took a Star Wars trivia uh, contest or quiz and flunked. You know, I said, I can't remember what Han Solo was smuggling. Was it jewels or... No, it was spices. You know, you guys now, I think ownership, I've ceded ownership to the world at large. <laughs> Years ago. I said it wasn't spices. <laughs> oh. You no, crazy siblings. Uh, JJ, how... So I just since... There, how's, is Harrison okay? Is, has he been okay? Uh, well, why don't we see for ourselves? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Harrison Ford! Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry that I really have to do this. I apologize. <laughs> I made them all take a picture backstage and I took a selfie and I completely blocked Harrison Ford in the picture like an ass. So if everyone could just lean in a little bit. Uh, thank you. Got him. All right. Um, first of all, thank you for coming out, Harrison Ford. How are you feeling? Are you feeling good? Are you feeling okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Good. How are you? I'm okay. Good. I'm at a Star good. Wars panel. I'm great. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Great. They're asking about your foot. My foot. My foot uh, just walked here. Yeah, he seems fine. <laughs> Not just walked, he bounded up the stairs. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm really appreciated. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for asking. Of course. Thank well, you for course. asking. Absolutely. <laughs> What, from your point of view, walking back onto the set, working with JJ, seeing Millennium Five, like what, what did all that feel like again? <laughs> well, it should have felt ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> it was 30, you know, 34 years ago, and, and, <laughs> and I sort of grew up, and, uh, <laughs> and yet here I was uh, uh, doing something I did so long ago, and... I will tell you that it felt great. It felt... Uh, 
I wasn't so sure it would, but uh, the company uh, was the right company. The director was the right uh, director. Uh, Larry wrote us a, a wonderful story, and I was uh, proud and grateful to once again be involved. You know, uh, <clears throat> this, uh, the original uh, Star Wars that I was part of really was... Uh, the beginning of uh, of my working life, and uh, I was very, very grateful for the opportunity that I had in that film, and for the success of that film, and uh, so it was great to be back. Thank you. Of course. I mean, I don't think there was, I don't think there was one person that I knew when we saw that other footage that you released not that long ago and you do the we're home like every dude that I knew I called like did you cry I cried did you cry too you cried I cried I cried I watched three times I cried three times so you know we all we all are a part of this as well and it's so meaningful that the three of you agreed to be in this and really kind of bring us home all together bring us home uh, in a weird sort of way so uh, I want to, now that everyone is out on the panel, I would love to throw it to the audience to ask a couple of questions, as I'm sure you're eager to do. So let's start with you, sir. Hi, what's your name? Hello, my name is Bradley. How are you? Hey, Bradley. Make sure and lean into the microphone. Yeah, will do. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this is a question for the returning cast, but if any of the other cast or crew want to answer as well, feel, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, what stands out to you as the biggest uh, difference in terms of theme in this new movie compared to the original trilogy? I don't, know that, I don't know that it's a, a difference in theme. It's a, it's a development of theme. And it's a, and it's a, a natural progression of the, of the, uh, that has occurred from, from the stories that we told in the first three. And uh, uh, a, perhaps a, uh, you know, an emotional rounding of the experience uh, that, um, that we all had in the first three films. I was just glad I didn't have to go to Toshi Station and pick up any power converters. <laughs> <laughs> I've placed information vital to the survival of the rebellion of the memory system of the Zor 2 unit. I don't want to do that again. But I didn't have to. We sort of, uh, we were more grown up this time, I think. It was... Yeah. I didn't yes. have to say it'll take a few minutes for the Navic computer to calculate the, the coordinates. coordinates. <laughs> My favorite. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Hi, what's your name? Hi, I'm Daniel. I had a different question, but seeing the cast here, I have to ask. Um, Thank you for coming. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> what I have to... Oh. Oh, th thinking back, did you ever think that you... Uh, what were your expectations of what your characters were going to uh, end up in before the movie? Like, uh, where did you think Han Solo would end up? Where did you think Luke would have ended up? And so forth. So and, forth? Um, That's all I am to you is so forth? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's exactly... You just Gilligan's Island her and the rest. That's terrible. <laughs> I thought it was going to be more girly this time, and we would do like a shopping planet. <laughs> and um, 
facials, very weird laser hair removal, uh, but it turned out differently. So that was okay too. Mark? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, when uh, you find out that the only woman that you really fell head over heels with is your sister. Yeah. It's tough. The, it, you know, it's telling you something. <laughs> so I had a feeling I'd probably wind up like Sir Alec in the first one, living in some igloo out in the desert. In with, therapy. With just, yeah, in therapy, but with uh, <laughs> just no human contact, just droids. <laughs> You don't think he dates? First question on a date. You're not my sister, are you? No. Okay, yeah, good. Exactly. <laughs> I, I want a blood test. <laughs> no, seriously, because that's, I mean, we all laugh about it, but can you, when you follow it through, that must have been quite the traumatic experience <laughs> for, for my character. You know what I'm saying? Because we were both after her in... in... I know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many times can I say I'm sorry? Uh, <laughs> I'll get over it someday. My sister, my mother. My sister, my, my mother. mother. <laughs> Harrison, do you have a thought about where Han might have ended up? Uh, no, it never occurred to think about it because I never expected uh, that it would uh, come back. Uh, to bless me rather than haunt me. It was, uh, <laughs> I, I never thought that we would do another and, uh, and it was only, um, <clears throat> you know, the, it, the, I was very gratified uh, when I read the script because I, I read something that I thought was uh, really remarkable, really uh, well, well written and uh, with some very intriguing uh, developments. And uh, so I was delighted to be involved and I was uh, very happy to be uh, uh, part of this, part of the uh, story and the, and the cast again. Excellent. Well, I want a, a huge hand for Star Wars The Force Awakens. Hey, you guys! <laughs> Neverland Feedback. Yes, it's time for a few Neverland shout-outs. Uh, we have a couple of new people who have joined our Facebook group. I'm going to give a little shout-out to Margie Briscoe and Jane Majeski. Welcome to the official Neverland Facebook group. I hope you have lots of fun interacting there in the group, and I invite everyone to come and join the group and, of course, follow us on Twitter and come to the like page. I try to post up as much fun news and information as I possibly can throughout the week, and so I definitely highly recommend you come and join it because we're having a lot of fun over there, and I do want to hear from you but uh... Uh, of course, you know, we, we got to wrap this up. I hope you enjoyed hearing all the information about Comic-Con, and hopefully I've educated you a little bit on Ant-Man. I've had to kind of learn and do some research myself, because I wasn't that familiar with the character. I just knew who he was and wanted to see the film, which, definitely, go see it. Uh, but until we see you next week, 
Uh, remember to keep that pixie in your pocket, and by that, of course, I mean that good, young-at-heart attitude. And remember to share a little pixie dust with other people you come across with, and sometimes it's just a handshake or a hug or a, hey, how are you, and a smile. Uh, just make sure you do that and come back next week. And uh, next week, we'll actually, we'll have an update to the Disney or the Neverland Battle of the Disney Vans. I need a lot more votes right now to make a decision on what band members are going to be cut from some bands. I know this will be the third week that uh, I've had this up for you, uh, but make sure you go and check it out and make sure you vote and just have a wonderful week. And we'll see you next time on the Neverland Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blueberry. We love to hear from you on Twitter.com slash NeverlandPcast and Facebook.com slash NeverlandPodcast. Leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492 and send email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. Join us next week and we'll once again go to Disney and beyond. The Neverland Podcast is copyright glue band productions and all original content belongs to the same. Other content is copyright of their respective creators and is used under Creative Commons license. <laughs> <laughs>